Over the last several weeks, we have been kind of touching on a number of different psalms, not going in any specific order, but just bouncing around a little bit, looking at psalms. I've always found the psalms so encouraging. They relate to us in many different ways as we see, whether it's a psalm of David or anyone else, we see a the real side, the human side of some of these individuals and the ups and downs of life that they're going through. And it's often very relatable to what we're going through. And so it's I find it very encouraging because as we see people crying out to God for help and them seeing how God has delivered or how they've found encouragement through the hand of God, I find it something that we all need on a consistent basis. So tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 30 in your Bible, Psalm 30, in a sermon that I've titled, Lord, I don't know where this is going, but I'm still hanging on. Lord, I don't know where this is going, but I'm still hanging on. Psalm 30. And in a moment, we'll look at what the Bible has to say in this psalm. A seminary professor was out of patience. His student had turned in a sermon with a very dull and uninspired title. So I had to make my title really inspired, I guess. So I don't know, maybe it's not, but I thought it was. But anyways, this professor knew that his student was capable of such better things, so he stayed after, to, stayed after him to keep on working hard at this. He said, the title is so very crucial. It must build interest into your listeners, and it must be intriguing. It needs to be relevant. It needs to be powerful. That's why he said, you're going to take this sermon back to your room right this moment, and you're going to not return to me until you have a much better title, one that is going to grab a hold of all of your listeners and really engage their attention. So the young man was at a loss. He, he wasn't much of uh, really good in, with, with fancy words and labels. And uh, he, he said to himself, how do I come up with a catchy title? And the professor sighed because he heard him. And he replied, it's not terribly hard. He said, I want you to picture your sermon title in great, big, bold letters on the sign on the front of the church lawn. And imagine that it's Sunday morning, and here comes a bus filled with people just passing by. You want a sermon title that is going to be on that church sign down by the road that is so powerful, that is so compelling, that is so intriguing, that everyone that is on the bus as their bus is passing by will come pouring out of the steps of that bus and want to hear the message inside the church. It has to be so inspiring that they can't resist the compelling bait of the words on that title. Do you get that image, he said? I'm sure that you can come up and have a much better, improved title. So the student went back to his room and he thought about everything his professor had said. He had the mental image fixed in his mind about a bus pulling up to the church and seeing the sign and making sure that whatever sign he had or whatever words he had on the sign was going to do what it needs to do and get that bus to stop in his tracks and get people out of the bus and into the church. And so as he thought about it, the next day he stormed into the classroom and he handed the sermon over to his professor with a new title and he said, I've got it. And the title read, there's a bomb on your bus. That is certainly to get people's attention. Sometimes situations come up in life with no warning. 
And they come up and they send us into panic mode, much like those people who would have been on that bus. We don't fully understand what is going on, why things are the way they are, how everything is going to end up. And everything seems to be out of control. And then maybe as time goes on, when the dust settles and we pick ourselves up, we don't know even what to do. Everything seems to be going fine. We seem to have been in control of all that was in our lives. And all of a sudden, it seems as if we've just been flipped upside down. And normal is nowhere in sight anymore. The road you're on seems to be taking you into places that you never imagined. It may seem that life has been full of only deep valleys of late where things seem to be going wrong much more than they seem to be going right. You seem to be facing more hardships, more discouragements than any sort of encouragements. It's been just one disappointment after another, and when there is even a moment of levity, you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. I've known people who seem to be magnets for affliction. So much so that when life is going good and there isn't a problem that they're immediately dealing with, they're almost miserable. And this sounds crazy, but I've seen it in people. They become so accustomed to pain and trouble and one hardship after the next, it becomes normal to them to have problems. The problem is that those times in the valley can often lead to spiritual dryness and conflict with God. The psalm that we're going to be looking at here this evening, and um, it records one of these such valleys in the life of David. There is some debate as to the timing of the psalm, when it took place, when did David write it, but the consensus is that David wrote this psalm not too long after he became king. After being anointed by Samuel and waiting 15 years, the day finally arrived for David to actually become king. And one of the first acts that he did when he became king was to return the Ark of the Covenant back to its place of prominence. The ark was designed to be a symbol of God's presence. It was designed to let the people know that he was there, that he was with them. But also, it was a sign of worship and a sign of trusting in God. The full culmination would come during the days of David's son Solomon, who would eventually build a house for God, and the Ark of the Covenant would actually essentially take up residence in that, uh, in that, in that house. Uh, but the presence of the ark, it meant blessing. It meant goodness. Uh, and David wanted to make sure that it was returned to its rightful place. After one failed attempt to move the ark, it had sat in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, the Bible tells us. And now David was ready to move it and to move it the right way. I want you to listen to how it was moved in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse number 13. It says, And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. You all are probably familiar with the story of Uzzah. And after that costly error, when David tried to move the ark of the covenant the wrong way with individuals that had no business moving the ark and moving in a way that it never should have been, it was on an oxen cart, which God never said to do it this way. Uzzah paid it dearly, ended with him losing his life, and David essentially sent the ark away and it sat in the house of Obed-Edom for three months until he finally understood what needs to be done. And this is what we read 
in 2 Samuel 6.13, how it's being transferred and transported the right way. It says, when they had gone six paces, they stopped and sacrificed to God. A costly error was made, but David made sure that this time around, they would honor God as they would return the ark the right way back to the city of David. It is believed that it was at this point that David wrote Psalm 30. As his heart was filled with such gratitude and appreciation for God and for all that he had done. In many ways, David, his life seems like an emotional spirit and a spiritual roller coaster ride. If you go through and you read from the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I've kind of highlighted that briefly for you, you'll see David's emotions go up and down from excitement to displeasure, to fear, then back to excitement again. And at times it feels like in our own lives, we're on the same roller coaster ride where things so ch change so quickly and feel as if we're being thrust back and forth, up and down without any sort of control. It is such occasions that can lead people to plunge into bouts of depression. And here in Psalm 30, we will see five experiences connected to the ups and downs of life. So first of all, I want you to see how we go from hurting to healing. How we go from hurting to healing. Now, we may not exactly know what David felt, but we do know that he definitely experienced some hurt. And notice what we read in verse number eight. Now, we're going out of order here, so... Forgive me for that, but we're bouncing around and end where it's supposed to end, but starting out of order. So look at verse number eight, because notice what we see here. It says, he says, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. So he's asking the Lord for help here because he's hurting. But notice what he goes on to say in the very next verse, in verse number nine. He says, what profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Do you, all of you see what David is, is doing here, what he's saying here? He's essentially crying out to God for help, saying, Lord, why are you allowing me to be hurting? Why do you allow me to be on the verge of death? Again, notice what he says in verse number nine. He says, what profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, he's talking about his death. Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? So he, he's saying, Lord, why are you allowing your servant to hurt? Why are you allowing me to be at the verge of death? What good could I possibly be to you as a dead man? This is what he's saying. Will my dust and ashes praise your name? Lord, I can worship you a whole lot better if I'm alive and well and not feeling at the point of death. And before you dismiss this as completely self-serving, as he's essentially praying and asking God to heal him, there is a bit of sincerity in this plea to God. What David is essentially saying is, Lord, if you will save me, you will have one more person worshiping and praising your name. Now, I think we often approach God the same way, maybe even with the same agenda. Lord, don't you want to bless me so that I can serve you better. Eventually, David realizes his position and his complete inadequacy in negotiating with the creator of the universe here. And he is able to put everything behind him and he simply pleads for God to just be merciful to him. He's 
able to do that, notice what he says in verse number 10. So in verse number nine, he's saying, what profit is there if I die? What good is it to you if I'm gone? And in verse number 10, he says, hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. So what we see here is essentially verse number nine, he's bargaining, trying to barter with God. God, do something because I'm better off to you alive than I am dead. And then in verse number 10, his mood kind of shifts a little bit and says, maybe just be merciful with me. He's done bargaining. He's done negotiating. Now he offers just a heartfelt plea for God's mercy. Now, this is often where all of us end up when we go to God for help. If you've ever dealt with a serious heartache or you've dealt with a serious illness, these are the words that we've probably at some point spoken to God. Even if it starts with us trying to broker a deal with God, maybe you're not praying for yourself. Maybe you're praying for a loved one. We often start almost as if we're trying to broker a deal with God. Lord, if you could just heal this person, if you could just heal this illness, this person is gonna be a saint for you. They have so much more time to serve you and to be a blessing to so many other people. They're better off alive than they are dead. I prayed this prayer. But we eventually find ourselves on our knees and just asking for God's mercy. We're broken down and we're weak and quietly approach our Heavenly Father knowing that we really don't deserve anything. And David here prayed for healing. This is what he's praying for. He's asking God to heal him, but he understands that he doesn't deserve any of it and he just begs for God's mercy. Now looking back at the first four verses of the psalm, because here David is praising God for healing. So verse number eight and nine is him essentially asking God for healing. And then verses one through four are him praising God for healing. So a little bit out of order, but notice what he says in the first four verses. He says, I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried unto thee and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. I'm aware that we're looking at this psalm a little bit out of order, but I want you to see how it is that we often come before God. David is comforted because the Lord has lifted him up from this darkness, and as a result, David lifts up praise to the Lord. Now, isn't this the natural response of ours after we've been through a particularly difficult situation to give praise to God. I remember a number of years ago, I was driving into work very early in the morning and I hit a patch of black ice on the road. And thankfully it was early enough that there was no one else on the road around me. But as I was coming around the corner of an off ramp, my car all of a sudden, when I was in the left lane, began to slide and I had no control whatsoever. I was, I was at the mercy completely of the road and I hit the guardrail on the right side of the road and the car just bounced right off of that and went across both lanes and hit the guardrail on the left side of the road and slid for a while until it finally came to a stop. And I, after I hit that second guardrail and the car eventually stopped, it's a really unnerving feeling that you go from being completely in control of this car to completely out of control. The whole thing maybe lasted about five, maybe 10 seconds. 
but it felt like an eternity as I was at the mercy of the car and at the mercy of the ice on the road. It took me a moment to regain composure and to just process what had just happened. I sat in my car, and again, no one, it was early enough when no one was on the road, no one even came and drove by me. But I just sat there, and at this time, I was in the middle of the road, and I'm just sitting, trying to figure out what just happened. And I got out of my car just to assess the damage, and I'm walking around the car, and I can see the damage on all the quarter panels and the side and the door and everything. And then I just happened to look over to where the first guardrail was, and I looked and I saw that there was a ditch probably 20 to 30 feet down. And I remember thinking, Lord, if that guardrail wasn't there, that's where I went first. I would have certainly rolled over into that ditch and been seriously hurt at best or maybe even not even alive at worst. And maybe you've been through something similar to that. Maybe the Lord spared you from, maybe it was a car accident or from another circumstance that could have ended with you being seriously injured, maybe even you escaped the jaws of death. It is at times like that which cause us to do what David did here, to extol the Lord for him lifting us up. Believe me, as I was able to walk away from that accident completely unscathed, I didn't have a scratch or anything on me, I was extolling the Lord. I, again, as I was walking around the car and seeing the damage on the car and then seeing the ditch, I'm thinking, I, I don't even want to think about what it would have been like if that guardrail wasn't there. It's often occasions like that which cause you to reevaluate the things that are in your life. All of a sudden, you're thanking God for these small blessings like a guardrail. All of a sudden, you're thanking God for so many things that are in your life which you've overlooked. You thank him for the sunshine. You thank him for the strength that God has given you to rise in the morning. You thank him for the air that you're able to breathe into your lungs. You thank him for the life that he has given you. And just like that, you're no longer struggling to find reasons to praise and worship God because your eyes have been opened to see God's hand in every little thing in your life. You wonder how you were blind for so long to miss all of these things that God was clearly doing and, and ordaining. And this is the joy that David felt as he wrote this psalm. As we consider God's goodness to us every day, we should be led to give him praise all the time. Look again at verse number four, because here David lays out the purpose for the healing. He says, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of of his holiness. Healing has a purpose aside from just healing. If we're honest with ourselves, there have been times where the Lord has brought healing or deliverance or met some needs where we haven't stopped to recognize the real purpose behind it all. Sometimes we've scampered off after, been, after having been healed or having a need met or having some provision taken care of without so much as a thank you to God. And the truth is that when God answers a prayer and he provides that healing, he brings deliverance or he meets some sort of a need, he reveals something about that purpose of why the problem was there in the first place. God intervened in our life for good reason and we now have the same responsibility to offer praise to God as we have the responsibility to first offer our prayer to God. Think about that. 
as, as much as we're quick to pray and to ask God for help, especially when we're dealing with some sort of affliction, whether it's a physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever the situation is, we're quick to go to God asking for help in prayer. But the Bible says we're also to pray and to shower God with praises as well. But if we're honest with what we go to the Lord with, I think the majority of the time, we'd admit that we're going to God asking for help and not offering our praise to him. Sometimes we think there needs to be a reason for us to go to God in prayer. That's not to say that we don't praise God in prayer at all, but it ends, ends up that prayer becomes the channel by which we're primarily asking God for help. Some of my most passionate and heartfelt prayers, I will admit, come from a place of need. I have come before God and poured out my soul to him, pleading with him to do something, asking for him to help me, and he does, but the prayer of thanksgiving that follows that deliverance or that prayer that was originally met and answered is often not as passionate. At times, we can treat God as if we only need him when there's a problem. And once we've received of him what we asked for, we don't need, him, we don't need to return to him until another problem arises. When God's deliverance comes, when he brings that healing, when his gracious hand provides, don't forget about offering him that heartfelt appreciation. This is what David is doing here in verse number four. In fact, he's urging everyone to give thanks and to praise God for his past faithfulness. Again, he says, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Go to God in prayer, he said, but praise him for how he's shown himself faithful to you. Praise him for how good he's been to you. Praise him for all of the deliverance and all of the answered prayer in the past. Don't just go to him when you feel like there's a need for you to go to him. Go to him all the time. So we may think that the only reason we have to pray is from a place of need, but the truth is we always have every reason to pray to God. Prayer should be as much praise as it is asking God for help. So we've seen how we go from hurting to healing, but I know, secondly, I want you to notice how we go from weeping to joy, from weeping to joy. Look at what it says in verse number five. It says, for his anger endureth but a, but a moment, and his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. In general, weeping and joy don't seem to go together, right? We don't generally associate the two together. Uh, there, are, there are certain exceptions when people cry tears of joy, but normally, when we think of people weeping, we don't associate that with joy. As separated as these two can be, because weeping and joy are usually at the complete opposites of the spectrum, what we read here is that we can experience both of these in a, sh a sh very short amount of time. One moment, we can be completely filled with joy, and the next moment, tears can be flowing from our eyes because life circumstances have taken a very quick and unexpected turn. There are two ways that we can look at this. First, you can understand that it is an everyday reality. It is an everyday reality. Now, as I mentioned earlier, life is very much like riding a roller coaster, one in which you can't see or expect the movement. Have any of you ridden a roller coaster that's inside where all the lights are turned off? I'm not a roller coaster fan as it is when I can see the turns coming or see the loops coming, but I've ridden once, I think, on a roller coaster that was inside, and I remember thinking going into it, this is such a mistake. And I had all of my concerns 
verified once I went on it because not only can you not see your hand in front of your face, you cannot see anything. You can't see where the turns are coming. As it is, when I see the turns coming in a roller coaster, I'm cringing and I feel like my stomach is left over here while my body is over here. It's not a fun experience for me. So you can just imagine how it's like when I can't even expect the turns coming. And that's how I feel life is at some time where we're on this roller coaster ride where we can't see anything coming up and all of a sudden life just takes us and swings us over here and we had no clue. There was no advance warning. There was no buzzer going off. There was no bend that you could see in the road and even if you can't see what's around the corner, you could see that something was coming. There was nothing like that. It is an everyday reality and I'm sure there have been times where we've tried to encourage people who were in some sort of a hardship by telling them just to keep hanging on because things are bound to change. When things go downhill, we say that there's only one other place for them to go, right? It's only uphill from here. So we encourage people to keep on hanging on and not to give up. Some of the best words in the Bible are the words, and it came to pass. Now, rarely are they for the, the meaning that I'm expressing here tonight. But... What an encouraging thought, that even with the craziness that we have come up in life, it's generally coming into our lives to pass. We don't always know how long life's troubles will last, but David was encouraged that even though weeping seemed to endure for a while, the darkness of night would eventually give way to the joy of the morning. This verse is David's way of telling believers to keep hanging on. His anger endureth, but a moment in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. When you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see where you're going. It's hard to see how things are going to end up, if it will even ever get better. It always feels like those times of difficulty are prolonged to the point that you forget what life was even like before you had these problems come up. Like we've lived with overcast skies for so long that we've forgotten what the sunshine looks like. Keep hanging on. Keep hanging on because God has shown that he is powerful enough to heal, to provide, to deliver, and his power is unlimited. Weeping, sadness, sorrow, and pain, and all of these horrible things may endure for a night, but rest assured, joy cometh in the morning. So treat it like it's an everyday reality, but also it is an eternal reality. As much as we're dealing with the hardships every day, we should be looking at things from an eternal reality as well. Start your day off on the right foot. The best way to start your day off on the right foot is to be praying about your day the night before. How many times have you woken up in the morning to hear some news that has distracted you in some way? Anyone ever have this happen? Before you really do anything, you wake up, and sometimes it's the craziness of the news that wakes you up. No one's ever had this happen before? I'm completely alone in this? All right, then I'm talking to myself. One person, maybe other. Okay, thank you. Goodness. Maybe it's something that you watched on television. Maybe it's something that you saw on social media because we pick up our phones usually the first thing in the morning. Maybe it's a phone call that you get that wakes you up or an email that you read or any number of outlets where information can be spread. You may have had every intention to start that day off spending time alone with God, but because of the news that you just received, which you couldn't control coming into your life, your spirit is weighed down by all of this. Before you even lay your head down to sleep the night before, 
Apply God's word to your plans and prepare yourself for the day to come. So before you even wake up in the morning, before you go to bed the night before, pray for the day ahead. When you're consistently doing this, trust me, you'll be amazed at how much better sleep you'll get and how much more confidence you'll have in the morning because when the craziness comes from that phone call or from that text message or from the email you read or from what you're watching on the news, you'll be reminded of what God laid on your heart the night before. We often talk about how important it is to seek God early in the day. And it is. I'm never going to say it's not. But sometimes even earlier in the day is too late. Why not try getting a head start and seek him the day before? Now, when we look at verses 6 and 7, I want you to notice what David describes here because as he's talking about still the same aspect, he talks about the difference between prosperity and poverty. Notice what he says. He says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. When life was going good and David seemed to have everything that he ever needed, he essentially says to himself, I have everything I will ever need. I am set for life. I am bigger than any problem that can ever challenge me. And before we're too quick to judge him for this thinking, because again, he says there in verse number six, he says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. And before we're too quick to judge him, I'm certain that we've all had similar feelings at some point. This prosperity that he speaks of here in verse six is nothing short of pride. In Proverbs 16, verse 18, the Bible says, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That feeling of being in control that feeling of, of having everything together where you almost feel like you're untouchable or invincible, where no problem can ever derail you, is a terrible state to be in. Of uh, being bigger than any problem you could face or never being moved can come crashing down with a single phone call, with a single text message or an email or a knock at the door or a single sentence from a doctor or from a lawyer or from a friend and all of that earthly security that you were so certain was never going to move you, all of a sudden is gone. It's good to be able to reap the fruit of your labors here in this life. And it's important for us to secure finances and to take necessary precautions to uh, protect ourselves. But even with the greatest security measures that we can make in our lives, we're still going to be vulnerable to devastation. This life is fragile. The good news is that eternal life is not. In Daniel chapter 4, we read about the Old Testament king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. We read about a bright and shiny day for this king as one day he was walking through the palace in Babylon and he is admiring everything that he was able to do and the great kingdom that he had built for himself. And I want you to notice what it says, what he says in Daniel 4 verse 30. It says, the king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Pride at its best. He thought he had done pretty well for himself, but I want you to notice what the very next verses say. It says, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, 
To thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Imagine that. No sooner is he boasting in what he thinks he's accomplishing, taking credit for himself that is only due to God, and God stops him before he can finish the sentence and said, hold on there, buddy, all of this. I have granted to you, but the moment you take credit for it, guess what you have coming? After enduring seven years of complete humility and living like an animal in the fields, it says, God would restore Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to notice what it goes on to say of him. In Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35, it says, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? My, what a change. What a change. Life is indeed fragile and you can go from prosperity to poverty in a matter of a few moments and we've seen it there in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to notice third how we go from mourning m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g to dancing mourning to dancing. Going from prosperity to poverty can be a good thing at times especially if it brings us to God or if it brings us back to God. Many people have found this to be true and they echo the same words that David said here in verse number 11. Notice what he says. He says, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. It is the content of this verse that often leads scholars to believe that the full context of Psalm 30, as I mentioned earlier, finds its roots in 2 Samuel chapter 6. As David finally made it right in how he was transporting the Ark of the Covenant, we're told there in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that he danced before the Lord and he did so with all of his might. What was previously a time of mourning because of the loss of a man named Uzzah had turned into a time of celebration. The Ark of the Covenant was finally being returned to its rightful place and it was no longer a time for a somber and quiet assembly. They needed to throw a party. They needed to have a blessed assembly. Life is going to be full of ups and downs and there will be plenty of days that are going to be sure to be filled with mourning. But the encouraging part is that when we're walking with God, he will often turn those periods of mourning into dancing, into celebration. It's not always known when life is going to throw us a curveball or when life will start looking up. But God is always there to bring us comfort even when we're in a season of mourning. The Bible is full of contrasts like this, where it's weeping and joy and mourning and dancing and prosperity and poverty, all of which to, is there to show us just how uncertain and chaotic life can be, but also to show us how faithful God is to us. 
God doesn't come and go in our lives. He's not with us in the times of dancing and then absent from us in the times of mourning. He is present with us at all times. And notice fourth, how we go from silence to singing. How we go from silence to singing. In verse number 12, he says, To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. In light of God's blessings, we truly never have a reason to remain silent. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Right? Should it really surprise us, though, what the Lord hath done? After all God has done for us in sending us his only begotten son who literally died in our place, is there anything that God can do for us that should be surprising at this point? He already did the biggest thing that he can do. There's nothing bigger than to send us his only begotten son. So any other thing that he does is kind of small in comparison to sending us his only begotten son. So should anything that he does for us at this point surprise us? We lose sight, though, of the smaller blessings and don't value them as great, even though we've come to expect some things every day. How many of you are thanking God every day for the air that you're breathing into your lungs? Anyone? Probably not. How many of you are thanking God every day for giving you strength to just function? Betty, good job. How many of you are thanking God every day for giving you a mind and an understanding to comprehend his truth? How many of you thank God for your family, for your home, for your car, for food in the fridge, for money in the bank, for clothes on your back, for friendships that he's given you, for the job that you have, for the gifts and talents that he's equipped you with, and the millions of other blessings that God is literally doing from you for you every single day? We may not always see where God's hand is leading us, but we should clearly be able to see that God's hand is richly blessing us. If your life is not filled with joy, it is not because God hasn't blessed you. It is because you haven't opened your eyes to behold and count how richly blessed you really are as a child of God. No matter the circumstances, if you're a believer in Christ, you have no reason to remain silent, and you have every reason to be singing his praises. Life is always going to be full of ups and downs, but the changing circumstances should never dictate the joy in the life of a believer. Happiness is contingent upon your present circumstances. God hasn't told us that we can be happy every single day. We're not going to be. Happiness is going to go up, it's going to go down. That's going to be dictated by how things in your life are going to be changing. But joy is contingent upon your eternal salvation. And your eternal salvation is not temporary. It is eternal, so it never changes. So in other words, you should never not have joy as a believer. When we can finally understand this truth, that circumstances have no bearing on our eternal joy, we will soon find that circumstances will begin to change in our favor. Godly faith has a way of changing the world around it because it allows us to live confidently, allows us to live triumphantly, knowing that whatever pain and whatever trouble that we're dealing with now is all temporary and our position in Christ is always permanent. David realized this truth and that's why he was proudly able to declare here, he says, to the end, that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee 
forever. Many of the hardships in life, they come for a reason, and the reason is for God to get our attention. God's intent is never to bring us down and to just keep us down, but to draw us closer to himself. Some of the best lessons are learned the hardest, and that is why life can truly be tough. There are definitely times where we feel like God is sometimes using us as a punching bag, where no matter which way we turn, we're getting hit one way and then the other, one blow after another. God likes to use the two by four to the back of my head. I think I've got a permanent mark right back here where he hits me and gets my attention quite regularly, actually. And I'm sure that he does the same for you. The truth is that God is allowing the problems to toughen us up, to prepare us for spiritual warfare. And in the process, he's showing us that he is the one who, when we trust in him, will bring the victory. Sometimes he needs to bring us down to our knees and humble us first to show us that he is the one who is going to perform it. And we need to be okay with letting him do what he's going to do. In all the afflictions that we will deal with, David learned to trust in the Lord's presence and deliverance. In fact, he said in Psalm 34, 19, he said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. And he would also go on to say in Psalm 119 and verses 67 and 71, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. We have these verses to help us learn to face times of affliction with a new perspective. You may not see what God is doing right away, but keep hanging on and trust that what he's doing is for your ultimate good. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your presence and your purpose, Lord, for allowing us to go through seasons of difficulty. Help us, Lord, even when we're uncertain and it's unclear as to how things are going to end up, to continue hanging on and keep trusting in you. And Lord, may we, as David said here, to the end, sing praise to thee and not be silent. Thank you for all that you do for us and all that you promise to do for us as well. May we trust in you every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.